0: Hey, guess what? It's episode time for uh, the Cherokee Rewind. I am Mick. Thank you so much for tuning in. We appreciate it as always, and uh, we always appreciate it when you give us a listen. Uh, Don't forget, subscribe. Make it easy on yourself. That way you just uh, subscribe to iHeart, TuneIn, Amazon, Google, whoever, and you just go ahead and listen, and every time a new episode drops, it'll let you know, and you'll never miss an episode. Well, this episode around we're gonna go old school. Uh, we're gonna go back a ways uh, to a guy who played, I believe, half a season for Toledo, and uh, that was in the ninety-six, ninety-seven season. And it's Steve. Is it Lutke or Ludke? Ludke. Ludke. I'm. Hey, I split the difference. Anyway, Steve Ludke joining us here, and uh, Steve. I I honestly don't remember, and I'll blow it completely, but I'm going to take a guess as to the jersey number you wore. Now, first answer me. Were you a forward or a defenseman? I
1: was a defenseman.
0: Okay. So I will take a guess and say you wore number, I'm going to
1: say, six. Uh, your guess is as good as mine, Mick. I can't remember. I felt like it was number two for some reason, but I don't. I least, honestly don't recall. Well, I thought two was Jason Renninger. Oh, maybe it was Rennie. I, honest to goodness, I can't remember. I always wore all through high school. I wore number sixteen. So that that half year that I was in Toledo, I I really cannot remember what sweater number I wore.
0: Okay. Well, that's alright We'll 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 figure it out. Because, see, the thing is, is that I don't do, I don't do, you know, I'm no Joe Rogan or anything here, all right I don't go in there and research and try to get all this stuff together and, you know, say, okay, you did this on February 12th, 1996. And it's like, what? No, I don't do that. I I'm I try to do all of this as much as I can from memory. And uh, <laughs> and so, you know, it's like,
1: I remember. Yours is probably... What's that? Yours is probably better than mine.
0: Well, Let's put it this way. I don't like I said, I don't remember, you know, specific dates on on a lot of stuff, but I remember events, you know, things that happened and just I have fun with those. And that's kind of the whole idea with this. It's just to kind of, you know, just remember what we did back when and, you know, just to kind of have a few laughs about it. But um, let's start. Well, first off, let's start. Where are you originally from?
1: I grew up in Wausau, Wisconsin, which is in the north central part of the state. Mm -hmm. Um, Grew up with uh, three sisters, was the only hockey player, of course. And I played high school hockey at Wausau West uh, between, I graduated 96. So 92 to 96, I was in high school playing. And um, yeah, after high school, at that time, I've, I've heard some of your chats with some of the other guys. You know, and at that time, opportunities were so limited for for players post-high school. Yep. And especially if you were going the junior route. And at that time, there was a camp. And I, I don't know who organized it or, or put the whole thing together. But it was in DePere, Wisconsin, which is just south of Green Bay. Mm-hmm. And we would go play at that camp. And I want to say it was like a four-day camp, but there were junior coaches from all over the country there. And after that camp that we attended, and I say we, meaning myself and a bunch of players that I, I played with in our conference in high school, had opportunities. There was a college opportunity right away for me. And then there was, I had spoken with Gord Fronte, who was the coach of the Central Wyoming Outlaws in the Old American Frontier League at the time.
0: Oh, yeah. And Man, then, that's
1: with, going way back. Yeah, exactly. And then Dave Cole, who coached the Bozeman Ice Dogs. I wound up going to training camp with the Bozeman Ice Dogs in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which would have been the fall of '96. Uh, incidentally, it was the first time I ever flew on an airplane was from my hometown to Milwaukee and then to Grand Rapids. Wow. Got through training camp. There were a lot of cuts that took place, and and they they had the group that they were going to take to Montana. And so we boarded a bus and headed west for 20 hours or whatever it took to get to Bozeman at the time.
0: Good night. (laughs) Now, I mean, that's a long way away from being that kid uh, brother to three sisters and you're the only hockey player. What put you on skates to begin with? I mean, what got you interested in the game?
1: My dad had played in high school. He, in fact, his graduating class in high school was the first class that was all four years at Wasa West. And he had played, so when I was four – I got a pair of skates, and at that time, it was interesting. And, and the way the youth hockey worked in Wassa was it was – I think Jennings mentioned this too. It was similar for him. It was sponsored by the Wassa JCs. So you'd go, and they would actually issue you equipment. All you had to – a helmet, a stick in your skates, and everything else was provided for you for whatever fee that my folks paid. I, I don't know what that was at the time. I, I doubt I was concerned about it. at <laughs> time to be honest with you it's like hey I'm playing cool exactly and the 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 first thing I remember Mick is there were there were all kinds of kids on the ice and this is not me you know thumping my chest but when I stepped on the ice I could just skate like it for whatever reason it made sense to me because and I say that because there were a lot of kids they would give them folding chairs and the kids would you know hold on to the back of the folding chair and just kind of shuffle across the ice and that's how it began. It was my folks just kind of saying, hey, you want to give it a shot? Okay. And away we went.
0: How long did it take you, like, to learn the game? I mean, like, the rules, the, the, uh, you know, just kind of the, the little nuances, ins and outs of the game?
1: Quite a while. I would say for most of my youth hockey, I was – a very average player. but I got to a certain age, and I don't I don't want to make the story too long, but I got to a certain age where I started to meet other players mm-hmm. that were better than me. And two guys in particular, and this was kind of tending more toward the high school years, there was a, a guy named Steve Strunk and his brother Jeff who had both played at Wassa West. Steve went on to play at Colorado College and then played several years in what was the old IHL. Mm -hmm. And so when I got to know those guys, we would play boot hockey all summer long on the tennis courts at the park across the street from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And it it was hanging out with Steve, who was playing pro at the time and was home for the summers. It was playing with those guys where I really... And, and if my dad were alive yet, he would tell you it was there. There was a big shift after those summers of, of hanging around with those guys. And Steve, especially, he owns a hockey school now. He would talk to you about, you know, in this situation, try this or do this or do that. And that was really the turning point for me. And I became obsessed with learning the ins and outs of the game. You know, when I got to high school, I would get the old VHS going, right, and I would record NHL games and I'd watch them over and over and over. I'd watch what defensemen did. You know, if a certain, if a certain, if the puck went a certain way and one player did this, how did the defenseman react? So to answer your question, you know, if I started at four, it was in my early teens that I became obsessed with trying to really figure out how the game worked.
0: Okay now uh, did you play house throughout your youth hockey or did you play travel too
1: it was all house i had an opportunity and i can't remember the name of the team so youth hockey was all just the 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 loss of jc's you know all the way until i think well until we went to high school so whatever that is age 15 or whatever it is um 13 i guess but in my freshman year of high school, there was a different camp I had gone to again over in the Green Bay area. And this was just before the Gamblers came into existence in the USHL. And I can't remember the name of the team. But I remember talking to my high school coach and saying, hey, these folks reached out to me and asked if if I would be willing to come and play there. And, he, and I remember him saying to me, Steve, you do what you want, but just understand you can't play here then. If you're doing the traveling thing, you can't play with your high school team. And I said, well, the heck with that. I I don't want to leave my high school team. So I continued that through, you know, through those four years.
0: So you play at Wausau, what was that, West, you said?
1: West, Yep. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what was the caliber of, of hockey like as you were trying to navigate through high school? We had a
1: great conference. Um, I'd struggle to remember all of the teams, but I would think I'd have to do some research, but I would think if anybody did, if you go back and look at some of the players that came out of, you know, I mentioned Steve Strong, he played pro. Um, there were a couple other players that I wound up playing against in juniors that came from Stevens Point. Um, there's a uh, well, of course, if you look at the NHL, um, Craig Ludwig yeah. is from Eagle River. And, and so he played in the same conference, obviously, years earlier. So it it, the high school level in that part of the state is is very competitive in that in that conference. And over the, you know since we've been there, what getting on thirty years ago, it's improved dramatically.
0: Now, um, were the teams that you had? I mean, they were competitive. Were did you were your win loss records pretty decent?
1: Or we had great teams in high school. We never did play in the state tournament. We had a wonderful coach. Uh, and, I, and I still call him coach, even at almost 44 years old, a uh, gentleman named Pete Susans, just a, a wonderful guy, great mentor. Um, we had great teams. We, Again, I'd have to go back and look. We never, we never finished a season with more losses than wins. In fact, one year, I think it was my junior year, we started the year, I think we played 22 games in high school a year, 22 to 25, something like that. We started the year up until Christmas. We were like 13 and one. And I remember a coach telling us that he had been asked to do an interview with the newspaper, and he said he didn't want to do it because every time he did an interview with the newspaper, the team would go on a losing streak. So we start the se- we start the season 13 13 and one, and finish it like one and 11 or whatever it turned out to be. <laughs> and you know, Pete was just furious that that he even accepted the interview because he felt like that turned the tides on the season. That is too. But, I don't know what it's like elsewhere, but high school hockey in Wisconsin is interesting because at the end of the year, it getting into the like your conference tournament really is, isn't about wins and losses because you play in the tournament either way, and if you can win your way through you can wind up in the state tournament. We just were never fortunate enough to do that while I was playing.
0: You know, and it's funny because, I mean, a lot of people, you know, some kids will tell you in their stories that high school hockey just wasn't for them and they wanted to be play at a higher level to them and be more competitive. And I smile because I still remember, you know, the fact that, you know, you talk about, you know, Northern Wisconsin being, you know, some really competitive and, really skilled hockey players come out of there and that played there. And I think of that, I think of places like obviously Minnesota, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at Chicago, the Chicagoland area, uh, even in in Detroit, you know, in the metro area, you know, a little north of it and a little west of it. uh, And even in around Detroit, there, there was some really good competitive hockey, you know, being played at the high school level. And you sure. know, I, I think, it, and it makes it, I mean, for a long time, it's changed now, but for a long time in Toledo, the, the, the high school uh, sees or high school level of playing, the, the, the jump was too big for most high school uh, players to try to get to junior, you know, while they were high school age, they couldn't, I mean, they, most of them. I mean, unless they were uh, travel, you know, midget, major, mid, whatever, midget, minor, tier two, tier three, uh, playing and going from that to junior, yeah, that, that was a, you know, you could see it. But the Toledo kids, back, way back when, we always had out-of-town kids and billeted them because sure. there are the the, the the level of skill and stuff in Toledo back then wasn't where it needed to be and now again it to be fair it has changed dramatically and now that you see kids that are coming out of the toledo area and the surrounding area of toledo that are able to play juniors They're i mean it's it's really gotten really good so you know good for, you know good for them and good for the high schools for developing these kids you know and i think it has to do with some you know, some of these guys that have been around junior programs, some of these coaches that have been around junior programs previous and have been able to build these kids up and coach them up and get them to playing at a higher level. So yeah. I, th- I think that's a big benefit. Now, you know, you, now you play all four years. Now, did you, um, did you ever wish or want to play, be up front and play forward at all or were you, were you always from the get-go uh d is for me
1: i was actually i was always a defenseman and maybe in my younger years had i gotten into the forward role because i could skate that was the one thing and i again I, i'll reference jennings and we can get into him later mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. i i heard him say when he was talking to you that that was something that just worked for him too. Whenever, wherever I played I was always one of the quickest guys but I didn't have I wasn't Patrick Kane dangling with the puck and the one thing I learned to your earlier question as I learned about the game was I like to see it from the back end and kind of help control the way the play would develop you know that obviously came in later years but yeah I never I remember one game in college my coach said to me jump out there and play right wing and I went what? And I, I was like, I may as well have been on the moon. Wow. I had no clue what I was doing. And I think I was on the ice 20 seconds. I went back to the bench and said, I'm never doing that again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Now, so <laughs> you play, you play, so you're playing now during your high school time. Did you ever go to uh, any, you know, uh, midget camps or, or junior camps to see where kind of see where you stood?
1: We, yes, not midget camps, but there was there was a camp, um, and I'm, I'm chuckling to myself a bit because I think if you probably go back in time, it was, in, in terms of the NCAA rules, it was probably an illegal recruiting camp. <laughs> um, <clears throat> excuse me, but it was run by, and and it was invite only, and it was run by the University of Wisconsin coaching staff. Okay. So Jeff Sauer was the coach. I should be careful with throwing out names here, too. (laughs) Oh,
0: no, I think they got this thing called statute limitations. I think you're okay.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. And so Jeff Sauer was their head coach at the time. And then he would always have a group of players that that were helping work the camp. So you'd get an invite, go to the camp. It was, again, I think four days. And it was really cool, actually, Mick, because you'd get an evaluation from a Division I college hockey coach at the end of the camp. And I, I still have these in a box out in the garage. And the one thing that stood out for me. And, and again, at, at, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you the story looking at it from the age I was at the time. I remember reading this card and Jeff Sauer writing and, you know, physically handwriting. 95% of the time you make the right play. That was the one thing that stuck in my head. And how important that is at that age to hear that from somebody who's just come from, I think they had just beat Colgate University a year or two before for the national championship. So there was that, that camp with the University of Wisconsin. And then we would also go to, I would skate in a camp at State Clown State University in Minnesota. And that was another one where it was – you mentioned Minnesota, you know, with the number of NHL players that they produce. Sure. Highly, highly competitive. Very, very intense camp, but it was a heck of a lot of fun. And credit to my you, folks for – Did you hold your pardon own? Pardon
0: me? Did you hold your own?
1: Oh, yeah. 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 You know, it was – it, it. honestly, the, the the game when I was younger was probably – one of the few things for me that I felt a hundred percent confident in you know like outside of that I was a pretty introverted kid you know pretty quiet you know like I mentioned earlier come from a a fairly big family where you just kind of do your best to fit in and 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 I think that's how I approached being a teammate you know through all the years that I played but I every time I stepped on the ice, I thought I can play with these guys. Oh, okay. Sometimes you're wrong, yeah. but, <laughs> but for the that. most part, yeah. I mean, yeah. There's obviously those you know those teams or players you run into and go, holy jeez, maybe I should rethink what I'm doing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man! So you you go you go to these camps and you hear the 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 feedback. Uh, what yeah. was it that after your senior year of high school, did you, how long did it take you to determine that? Yeah, I'm definitely playing at a higher level now because, or I'm going to go play at a higher level. I'm going to keep going with my career.
1: Again, it was just that confidence. Comp- it, it, it was confidence. It wasn't being cocky because there's a difference between that and, and being confident. I just, I knew I could play somewhere. I just, you know, again, back to some of your other conversations, you know, in the mid-90s, there there just weren't that many opportunities. So you had to be in the right place at the right time. You know, I mentioned that camp in De Pere, and that's what that turned out to be, was right place at the right time. I dismissed a, a college offer in Boston and and went the junior route instead because, quite frankly, at the time, I wasn't ready to go to school. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life professionally I thought you know all of us think we're gonna play in the NHL right yeah so yeah I mean you know that's the, every kid's dream that plays a game so I decided to go the junior route and 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 hooked up with the with the Bozeman ice dogs and that was a, it was that was a bit of a tumultuous start because I'm on the ice with the guys every day right
0: yeah
1: so you, you know these are your you're playing with them, you're practicing, you're playing games. And then all of a sudden, one day in a hotel lobby, the coach comes to you and says, we're sending you to the Central States Hockey League. And you go, where the heck is that? (laughs) And he says, Toledo, Ohio. And I remember my first thought being, how in the world am I going to get from Montana to Ohio? (laughs) Well, it turns out there's another kid. His name is Jade Parnell, who was also from Wisconsin and had a vehicle in Montana. Mm-hmm. So we gather up our belongings and pack him in Jade's car. And, and the trip starts. It's a total disaster from the beginning. Jade and I go to the gas station, fill the car up. And Jade's kind of a nervous guy. Yeah, Like real twitchy. We take off from the gas station. We had to stop back at his billets, and he turns his head and he looks at me and he goes, "Holy crap! I forgot to pay for the gas." (laughs) So it was like a total inadvertent gas and run. So we go, we we turn heel, go back to the gas station, pay for the gas. Oh my god! Go back. Go back to his billets. He's got to pick up whatever he has to pick up, and we get on the road. And we literally drive overnight from Wisconsin or from Montana, rather, to Wisconsin. In North Dakota, I'm asleep in the passenger seat. Jade hits a mule deer running across the road. Oh my
0: god!
1: The car, yeah, the car, the car is fishtailing. We wind up in the center median, if that's the right word. And I remember waking up going, we're okay, we're okay, we're okay. He gets control of the car, we get back on the road, we keep going. So we get to Wisconsin, I don't know, it's six in the morning or eight in the morning, whatever the case is, and then my folks drive over from Wausau to pick me up and then return me home. I get on an airplane, fly to Detroit. I mean, this is literally within 72 hours. Now, you imagine this for an... 18 or 19-year-old kid, right? I get on an airplane, fly to Detroit. Scott Searing picks me up in Detroit. We drive to Toledo. I stay at his house. We drive back to Detroit and play a game the next day. (laughs) Oh, my God. And I'm on the ice that night, Mick, going, I don't even know where I am. I know none of these players. I met the coach 24 hours ago. And I don't remember if we played the Chiefs or we were playing the Metro Jets. But anyway, long story short, this was my introduction to the team in Toledo. And that's what the story that led to me landing there was. Oh my God. That's Um, insane. It was wild. It was, I I don't think, I remember getting back to Searing's house after he picked me up in Detroit. And he said, you know, here's here's the guest bedroom. I remember laying across the bed on my stomach with all my clothes, shoes, everything on, and passed out.
0: <laughs> I bet. I bet. My God! And then play, played the next night. Wow. Now, let me ask you, um, going back, when you guys hit the deer, do you know if, if it survived or?
1: That I don't know. I do remember Jade and I stopped at some point, and the – the apron underneath the bumper, you know, the plastic trim was cracked, and there was a bunch of deer hair stuck in it. But I, we never learned the fate of the animal. I, I, I would like to think it survived, but I'm not sure. <laughs>
0: yeah, you know, for for the sake of any pita freaks out there, uh, it, it may have it hit it hit the car and cracked the car and kept going. There you go. Yeah, that's your story, and you're yeah. sticking to it. But uh,
1: there we go. Works for me. <laughs>
0: Oh my gosh that is that just that I, I i can picture this believe it or not i can picture this because oh. you know i've had i won't say the exact same experiences but i've had similar and uh it, it, it oh my gosh the the uh gas and and dash uh that that, that that's priceless <laughs> you know that's just too funny
1: now so I, go ahead i remember saying I remember us thinking we were going to jail.
0: <laughs> Dude, you thought your, you thought your dance card was busy on this side of the wall. You haven't lived yeah. a, You haven't, you haven't lived unless you've gone to the Wausau County annual Sadie Hawkins dance. Anyhow. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what an adventure.
0: Oh yeah. So now you get to Toledo and, uh, What was the – I mean, obviously, it was a very – we'll call it informal, an unusually informal introduction to your team. Yeah. Uh, How long did it take for you to where you could kind of go, okay, I can breathe. You know, I can – you know, uh, I think I'll be okay here.
1: I think it took – Probably a couple of weeks. I, you know, it, it's it's like any change in life, right? You have to kind of interact with, you know, the folks that you're meeting. But that group was, you know, from the coaching staff to the players, was so welcoming, and and you mentioned earlier, you know, everybody kind of comes from everywhere else, so you everybody has that connection, right? That, you know, and this is a thing I think that is lost on a lot of people is you know for a junior hockey player especially in your first year it's it's constant change you know you're leaving home really not prepared to leave home
0: Mm
1: -hmm. you wind up living with a new family and you're meeting new teammates and then trying to learn a coaching system in a league and and you know improve yourself it's it's very taxing when you're 18 or 19 years old some of the kids were 16 years old when i when I was in Bozeman, we had rookies that were 16, mm-hmm. you know, still in high school. And, you know, so there's that couple week period, at least for me, where you're getting to know people and you kind of figure out who you're going to connect with. Who are you playing the game with? Who's your, you know, whether you're a forward, who are your line mates? Who's your partner on defense? Um, but once that happened, that that group of players was so good. You know from top to bottom that you just at least for me you quick, you pretty quickly figured out your role and just fell into it okay and and that's what everybody that's what made that group successful was everybody understood their job and they did it without any ego you
0: know and what kind of uh, amazed me back then because i mean that was my first exposure to junior hockey I mean my my only other exposure to junior hockey was listening on the radio to the Windsor Spitfires uh, and because yeah. uh, the radio station had a real powerful signal so I could listen to Steve Bell call games and I I just I mean to me it was Canadian hockey so it had to be just a step a couple steps under the NHL so I just I kind of assimilated it that way not realizing the whole junior hierarchy and how it it trickles down etc not only in canada but here you know i learned that later all i knew was just that it was a a team on the radio and cool you know it was cool you know and uh i i so when i went to toledo i you know uh I, a friend of mine that i worked with uh invited me to a game and he was saying that you know they need a play-by-play guy uh for the videos and I was like, "Oh." I said, "Well, it's your lucky day." You know, I said, I went to school for that, blah blah blah. And uh so awesome. I got to I got to meet the owners and of course uh the late great Dr. Rod McCarthy, uh, the owner. He was doing the play-by-play, but he would always chirp and, and get all excited by the play. He spent more time yelling at the referees and chirping them on into the microphone than he was calling the games. So, you know, that I offered to do it and so they heard me and they said okay we you know go for it you know you're in so I was real grateful for that night that was my first real opportunity and I never forgot and I spent 20 seasons uh, until 1617 to uh doing play-by-play uh it started with just doing on the videos and then I went to another company where they had me voice over their games and then I ended up uh, a couple like a year or two after that I ended up, uh, the internet was just starting, and so I did all our games on the internet. Well, it was funny, I learned from that first year, you know, that first year, you know, of course, the team gets all the way national championship and falls short, uh, wins the national championship the next year, and, like, I think two out of the next three seasons, the team went to nationals. And so I'm thinking this is supposed to be like this every year and (laughs) you know, you know, but, uh, it's like, no, it isn't. And then you realize after a while, you realize how, I mean, unless you're St. Louis, but, uh, you realize how hard it is to get to nationals and how hard it is to qualify the work you got to put in. And of course, at that point, you realize they did, they did that too. But I'm just saying from, uh, from from a kid, you know, a sixteen year old, even through twenty, even through the twenty year olds, you know, you're expecting a lot out of these kids, but the payoff is so sweet when, when you're able to pull it off.
1: It it really is, Mick. Um I mean let me mention three things real quick. Stories we need to come back to. One's about Windsor, one's about St. Louis, and then about the people that you worked with for twenty years. But you're right, the payoff is and I recall, and this bothered me a lot of time when I was playing in Bozeman, our, our coach would, at least twice a day, he would say, this is a business. And I remember thinking, I'm 18 years old just trying to get to the next level. Like, I don't understand for me how this is a business. And and it it for a little bit, it took away from the experience. Now, all these years later, I understand what he was getting at, but at the time, Um, You probably could have told the story a little better, but you're right, that's that's the approach you have to take. You have to treat it like you're a professional and pay attention to what you're doing and and mind your business, your role on the team, and be a good teammate. And you're right, It, it literally sets you up to be successful for the rest of your life. If you can take those core values away from it, and that's what we learned at the junior level, especially when you have such a great coaching staff like we did in Toledo. You know, I remember thinking at first that Bob Zion was freaking insane. <laughs> this is going to got...
0: come as a shock to you, Steve, but <laughs> you're not the only person that I've heard that from. Now, they, yeah. like you, they've grown to understand him and love him. But, yeah, exactly. when they first were introduced to him, it was like,
1: oh, God. <laughs> yeah. One of the first things I remember, Mick, was you, you know I, I told you the story. Get through the first game, and then I'm finally going through a formal practice. And searing always made it fun. We always had a good time in practice. But God help you if you did something stupid, because Zion would grab you, pull you aside, and say, "Head rolls." And the first time he said it to me, I went, "What? What? I don't. What is a head roll?" So what he would basically do is he would arbitrarily assign this number of head rolls you had to do based on whatever infraction you were guilty of, and you'd turn somersaults on the ice, and he'd just stand there and stare at you. <laughs> and when he, sati- when he was satisfied you'd done enough, you'd get back in line and go through whatever drills you were going through. And I remember the first time going, where, where did they find this guy? <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh,
1: I love it. I but- love it. You're 100% right by the end of the season. You, you know, you you can't help but love the guy because he was a he was a good coach. He understood the game, but more important, he cared about the kids. Yep. You know, it in and, and and I'll I'll take that with me the rest of my life, and that was both him, Omi, and Searing. I mean, they they all treated us the same way. Nobody played favorites. It was kind of like the Lombardi thing, right, when he coached the Packers. <laughs> You know, everybody was.
0: I mean, the reference
1: there was he treated everyone like dogs. They didn't do that in Toledo, but they were, They didn't play favorites. Everybody had the same expectations. It's give us your best every day.
0: And uh, you know, the funny part is that I, you know, I think about you know back then. I always I always likened it to uh, Scott was the psychiatrist. Um, Omi Todd Omi was good cop. Bob Zion was a bad cop and hundred uh, percent. Yeah. You know, and I mean, Scott always tried to get into your head and try to work with you to try to see what was ticking in there and see what he could do to tweak you and help you get, become a better player, a better guy. Um, Omi, everyone loves Omi to this day, to this day, you know, he's, uh, he's back behind the bench coaching with uh, Kenny Miller and uh, they are, um, I mean, you, you can't help but just love the guy because he's got a, a great sense of humor, and everyone just loves the guy,
1: you know. And... Yeah, you, you've, you've got him pegged for sure. Yeah, Searing was – I don't remember exactly what I said to him, but we were in in between periods. It was a home game, and I don't remember who we were playing. But you could just sense that the the momentum of the game was shifting. And I, I made a comment to him about what I thought we needed to change. And he looks me dead in the eye and he goes, why don't you just worry about your own game for now? And I went, okay. Yeah. <laughs> just go back on the ice in the next period and keep playing. But you're right. That's what he would do. He knew the guys he needed to give a kick in the rear end. And then he knew – He understood the players that he had to pat on the back and say, "All right, come on, buddy, you know, everything's going to be okay." Um, And and you know, such a cast of characters. Like I said, I I listened to a few of the guys that you talked to, and um, Kellermeyer especially. Oh lord! He deserves a spot in some kind of hall of fame somewhere.
0: For storytelling, maybe.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right. I remember in a game, again, it was a home game. We might have been playing Fraser, And he got cross checked. Like, in, you know, th- the stick hit the shoulder and then got him in the neck. And Mike grabs a hold of the guy right in front of the bench. And he's he's got a hold of him and he's yelling at Searing, Can I toss him? Can I toss him? <laughs> I remember I, I was on the bench at the time and I turned my head and looked at Searing and he never said a word. He just shook his head. And Mike let the guy go. I don't know if Mike ever got over that. Like he <laughs> wanted to knock some teeth out right there in front of our bench. <laughs> oh lord. The guy cropped, checking him in the neck.
0: <laughs> Kelimore is a piece of work, man. I mean, like I oh, said, yeah. he he loves to wax poetic. I give, I give you that. That guy, he, he's I love him. He he's just uh he's just one of those guys, man. Pride of Fort Wayne. And, uh, man, it's just uh, – of course, he's in Indianapolis now, but, I mean, still, he just – he's a piece of work.
1: Um, I wish I could remember all the details of things like he does because it it was such a whirlwind thing there. I think if you look at the stats of that season, I don't remember exactly what month I got there, but I think I only played like 20 games because at the end of the year, I absolutely destroyed my right shoulder. I mean, it it's still – terrible it's arthritic and and junk now what
0: what Um, month did you get there was it like after thanksgiving or before christmas or
1: i seem to recall it was after thanksgiving for sure because i played every game while i was there up until i tore my shoulder up and that was right at the end of the year because I, I wound up because we won the gold cup that year. And I wound up not being able to play in the in the tournament because my I physically could not even use my right arm.
0: Okay. Um, now, tell me about some of the guys that you like. Who was your D partner? Do you remember that as far as when you played there?
1: Gosh, I don't. And and Searing wasn't real keen on just keeping pairs, you know. It would he would kind of dictate, dependent on who we were playing. Um, gosh, I'd have to look at our roster again, and
0: because I, can't, I'd have to look at it. Yeah, I can't even remember the the only other defenseman I remember vividly, uh, at least at that point, was uh, Jason Reniger. and. Um, Cause he was number two, and you never missed him because when he'd lay someone out with a thunderous hit, you knew it.
1: Yeah, and I I remember I remember taking plenty of shifts with him, but yeah, you're right. He was a very, very physical player for sure. Because
0: um, now, yeah, I Crow, Rob Kroll was up front, right? He wasn't a defenseman, was he?
1: I don't think he was. No. Okay. And he was the He was a what? Crowley was the tough guy.
0: Yeah. And, uh, well, I just remember him in the uh, in the Gold Cup uh, game uh, doing the slap shot thing where he went across the Motor City bench (laughs) with a stick.
1: (laughs) There's another incident where you feel like people are going to jail. That was one. Which maybe that's Maybe that's a good segue because I've heard you have this conversation um, <laughs> about the the Sean Cass incident in Detroit.
0: Oh gosh,
1: yes. that I heard Mike say that he thought he said it was between the second and third period. I remember it being at at the end of the first period because I was on the ice and I was leaning on the on the boards right in front of the bench, and and Searing was saying something to me, and. And all of a sudden he's he's hitting me in the back saying get over there and i and i look and there's this donny brook going on right at the gate going off the ice and so i race over there and i i step over the you know there's always that little ledge there for the boards to jump onto the mats yeah. and i grab the first player i can find and my momentum carries us off the rubber mats and onto the concrete oh lord and now it's like the ice so we, we fall down and this will make sense with the Rob Kroll story in a minute so I grab the guy we fall down I'm on all fours and he's reversed so he's laying on top of me with his hands around my waist and somehow in the meantime my helmets come off because we had to wear masks in that league yep and I'm trying to wiggle free from the guy and I get sucker punched in the right eye no idea where it came from and so my eyes are water and I turn my head to the left and there's a woman swinging her purse <laughs> at player you you might want to ask Kroll this but I'm almost certain it was him if it wasn't him it was someone else in a Toledo sweater that gave her one to get her to stop swinging the purse and just jelly legged her
0: oh my she God.
1: looked looked like something out of the old Looney Tunes when they get hit on the head with an anvil and their legs just go (laughs) and somehow I get loose from this guy and the thing gets broken up and you've heard the other part of the story where literally police coming into the dressing room and I remember guys would certain players, I don't remember who exactly, but certain players wanted their skates sharpened every period. I never understood it. So you'd have a pile of skates in the middle of the of the dressing room. Well, it, during this game with this fight going on and guys all, on and off the concrete, I think every pair of skates in that room was in the middle of the room wanting to get sharpened. In fact, Mick, I remember guys with their feet up on the bench and searing running a hand sharpener over their skates.
0: Oh my
1: God. Just to try to repair from that stupid disaster that we found when a fan came after Cassie we had gotten Maybe two weeks earlier in the trade from Detroit, it was. I. Uh,
0: but the reason I, he got traded to Detroit wasn't that involved. With he got into a a, a scrap with the a, with the rink or uh rink manager or a, something in St. Louis.
1: A Boney driver or something. Yeah, the yeah,
0: boney driver. That was it. That was it.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I remember when he when he showed up. I remember. Nobody really said anything. It was just all of a sudden there's this new guy in the room, and we're going, if he's here, is someone leaving? You know, like, what's going on? And, of course, Cass was a great player. Um, But it's interesting. If you look at that team, I think if you check the stats on it, Cass was the number one scorer. I forget who was second. But the the guys who led the team in scoring – We're well over 100 penalty minutes on the year, too. (laughs) I think if you look through that, there's probably half a dozen guys that had upwards of 150 penalty minutes.
0: That sounds about right. That sounds about right. (laughs) Lord. And you know what the funny thing is? And I said it on other podcasts, but I'll say it to you also, is... Yeah, the team, the team after you, the next team, next year's team, yep. won the national championship, and I think they had mm-hmm. fantastic chemistry and mojo, and they were very skilled at what they did. But as a team unit, uh, as a as in terms of talent, I think top to bottom, I think your team in that year had more, uh, was a better team than the year that won nationals because those guys were individually, they all had great talent and skill and whatnot. And they, uh, they had, they bonded really well. But like I said, I just think that you guys, um, you guys had uh, just, uh, it, I mean, you guys were a powerhouse and you just ran into another powerhouse. That's all, you know, and yeah. that happens.
1: Yeah. I think we finished that. You're like, we played 40, right? So I think the, the, the record was 23 and 10 with some mm-hmm. with some ties in there, I think, mixed in. Mm-hmm. And you're right, Mick. Super talented bunch of guys. Um, just and the, and everybody got along. You know, I heard Mike mention this too, and, and Kyle as well, when you talk to Kyle Jennings, and he and I are really close today everybody was just working in the same direction. It was most nights. It was, we're not going to lose, you know, we did 10 times that year, but and that again goes back to the coaching staff too, was, you know, just getting everybody moving in the same direction. It, It really was a special group of all the years that I played and I played through college. Um, I look back on that group as is, is more fondly than, than any other team I played on.
0: Now, um, when you – you know, uh, tell me a little bit about some of the other guys that you remember. I mean, I remember the Deitches were there, Sean Bratton, uh, yep. Kyle. Um, trying to remember who else. Um.
1: The legendary Ronnie Burnside. <laughs>
0: What can you tell me about Ronnie?
1: Oh boy, here we go with this one. We played, I I think it was an odd, for whatever reason, a Thursday night game in Detroit. And again, I don't remember if it was the Chiefs or the Jets. But then we were off. We didn't have a game again until Sunday, and it was back home in Toledo. I'm going to leave out two names just to avoid incriminating anybody, but I'm going to include myself and Burnside. <laughs> okay. We we came well, and part of the reason is I I have a a pretty good feeling of the other two guys that were with us, but I don't want to misstate names and 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 tell the story incorrectly. So we came up with this idea that let's go let's go over to Windsor. Oh, of course. You know, let's go have a few beers over in Canada and have a good time. And then we'll, you know, turn around and go home. So we wind up at Don Cherry's in Windsor. And this is the first time in my life I've ever ever been in Canada. And you got to remember at that time, security was a high five and a pat on the butt in the way you went. Yeah. You know, getting into the country. So we went to Don Cherry's and we wound up at the Windsor Music Cafe. And I think we headed back toward Detroit somewhere around two in the morning. I did not drive, Ronnie was not driving. The guy who did drive did not have a single drop of alcohol. Hand to God truth.
0: Okay.
1: We get to the board, and you know, they're asking they're asking the regular questions. Where are you guys headed? Burnside is in the passenger seat in the back, rolls the window down, sticks his head out the window and says, We're going home. <laughs> and the and the gal. Working at the booth says, "Where are you, gentlemen, headed?" Ronnie, United States. <laughs> and now she's now she's getting irritated. So the driver <laughs> says, "We are going to Toledo." And then the question comes: Do you have anything to declare? Burnside's head goes out the window again. <laughs> I declare I'm drunk. And the gals. And now she's really upset with us, and she says, "Do you gentlemen understand that the minute you cross that border, you're under 21?" Ronnie. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) At this point, she's just done with us, right? She's like, "Just get out of here." Well, evidently, when you're leaving Canada, and we we drew we we took the tunnel under the Detroit River. When you're leaving Canada. And you see the sign in the tunnel that says you're entering the U.S. Evidently at the time, I don't know if it's still the same, the custom was lay on your horn, say adios to Canada. So that that tunnel, if you've driven through it, has a bit of a curve to it. Mm -hmm. We're coming around the curve, banging on the horn, four idiots in a car singing, oh, Canada. And one of the times the car horn got hit, oncoming traffic slammed on the brake and the following two vehicles piled into them. Oh no! And we went. Heck with that, we're going, <laughs> and kept on our way. It wasn't a serious thing. I mean, it was just you know fender benders. But Still. we're literally over. We're literally over border now. Going, we're underage drinkers at this point. <laughs> I I got. Back, so I don't remember what time it was, and my billet mom was sitting on the sofa, tapping her foot. Oh, man she said to me, she said to me, do you remember the two rules that I gave you when you moved in here And I said, yes, ma'am, I do And she said, what were they And I said, when you, when you're gone I'm not throwing parties at your house and if I'm not coming back I need to call you. And she said 3:30 or four o'clock or whatever it was in the morning to me is not coming back and you didn't call. You want to stay here any longer you follow the rules or you leave And I said, okay.
0: Good. I right. went, <laughs> who did you bill it with after you left Scott's?
1: Uh, the woman's name was Margaret Hoover, who was just incredible. Um, her family was so good to me. And, and she was, she had not planned on being a billet. She had a daughter named Barb. Who billeted one of the other players, but I, I don't remember who stayed with with her with her oldest daughter. Um, she had three three daughters. All one was in college at the time, and the other two were married with their own families. And she owned an industrial flooring company in Toledo called Hoover Wells. They did uh, epoxy flooring in in industrial plants. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was interesting because, you know, it, this is the answer to the earlier question. I did get there between Thanksgiving and Christmas because I remember I was in her house for about two weeks. And she left for a month to go to a house that she owned in Florida. She would winter in Florida. Wow. So here's a kid that she's known for two weeks. And she actually left money in the cabinet for me to get groceries. Wow. Yeah, she was, she was unbelievable. She, she got sick of me, you know, like most of us, I suppose, because all we wanted to do was play hockey. We'd sleep till 10 o'clock in the morning and she got tired of seeing that. So she made me go to work at her company. So I would do that from seven in the morning until about one and then we would skate in the afternoon and, uh, yeah, she was wonderful. We'd sit at her kitchen table and just talk for hours about everything, Mm -hmm. just and I don't think that necessarily unique to the stories you've heard from some of the other guys. Everybody in Toledo was so good to us, and I think, you know, if you're you get into that situation where you're with a good family, and and life feels somewhat normal when you're so far from home, and I think that's what built those good teams. Was, you know, everybody around us was so nice to us and, and so welcoming, and it just made you want to go out and 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 just. You know when they were at the games especially the billet parents you know i guess in a way by winning games you were in a way saying thank you for for being so good to us you know Mm -hmm. it's
0: a good motivator good motivator when you have that kind of that kind of uh uh, background uh support
1: you know oh it, it was fantastic she she was so good and and this by the way is is how so I was the two guys I was closest with on the team were, were Ronnie Burnside and, and Jennings and <laughs> Jennings would come. My billet mom had, you know, the dial up internet at the time. Yeah. So Jennings would come over to come over to the house and he and I would hang out. And what was interesting with him was he and I were like two peas in a pod right away. It, it just almost inseparable. So he'd come to the house. I'd have to go to work and he would literally sit on that damn computer all day long in the chat rooms talking to people of course well we know now that he's you know a country musician my billet mom had a karaoke machine and so Jennings would sit down there in the basement and he'd plug CD after CD into that damn karaoke machine pick up the microphone and he'd stand there and pretend like he was on stage which you know obviously now makes sense but at the time it was like, good Lord, Kyle, put the microphone down. Will you please just stop? <laughs> yeah.
0: Did he uh, Did he run out there and uh, put on a wife beater, some uh, aviators, his ball cap, and start oh, running God. around?
1: <laughs> Have you seen some of those early photos of him when he first started doing it? I saw one.
0: I saw one. And, and he told the story on his podcast about uh, he coached a little bit down in Nashville while he was down yeah. there. And he ended up, his team ended up playing Kellemeyer's team and how, Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And, uh, he, he talked about that where Kellemeyer had a, a, a a photo, uh, an eight by 10 that he first put out one of his first photos that he put out. And it was him trying to be, do that where he's got the aviators, the cap, the wife beater yep. and the whole nine yards. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and Kellermeyer gave it to one of his players, to one of his captains, and sent him over to their bench and said, uh, hey, Mr. Jennings, yeah, I know who you are here. Uh, could you uh, do me a favor? And, and hands him the photo for him to sign. And, uh, I, and Kyle's like, I was ready. To, you know, it's like he just looked over across the bench. and Of course, you know, uh, over at Kellermeyer, Kellemeyer's, you know, just – Beady little eyes, just you know, all that stuff. That that's just vintage Mike Kellemeyer
1: right there for you. It sounds exactly like something he would do. Um, yeah, Kyle and I have been close for for quite a few years. Um, I'd go down and see him in Asheville. I was down to see him in in February over in Kalamazoo shortly after his dad died, and mm. hung out with him for a week. And, um, yeah, it was. Uh, Yeah, it's just those friendships you know from from those different teams that um that i don't i'd be reluctant to say you don't find that in other sports but i i feel like in the hockey world it's just it's a little bit different you know and most of us played other sports you know baseball football wrestling whatever you were into and i just i there was nobody else in other sports that I've taken relationships that I still have, you know, at almost 44 years old now.
0: Yeah. You know, and it's, I think it's because, you know, baseball, football, basketball, those are entrenched and ingrained throughout the country, not just in certain pockets. Hockey was different in that it not only was in just pockets across around the country, but it's also more of a lifestyle. Because in order to sustain the game, you got everybody had to, uh, you know, you played tournaments in cities across the country and in Canada. So, you know, you didn't, you know, the parents, your vacations weren't normal vacations. Your vacations usually were going to tournaments, you know, and spending the weekends in other cities and stuff and watching your, you know, watching your nine or 10 year old kid coming back. From wherever you know in the middle of the night and doing homework in the car, you know that kind of stuff that
1: and I think that's what yep.
0: makes it different from the other sports, and that's why the bond I think is so much greater
1: you're hundred percent right and and the thing i I think that that again gets lost a bit at times is is the sacrifices that the families make, yep. Not just the players. I can't imagine you know, we have an 18 year old here at home and, and she's leaving for college in the fall, and it's like that's frightening to me. Yeah. You know and you know, and then you look at these kids, you know, like we mentioned earlier, some as young as sixteen that are leaving home and are going Lord knows where in the country and just have to kind of find their way. It's um, has to be very stressful for the folks back home. But you're right, Mick. I mean, that's the commitment that, that I think is unique to to hockey players and hockey teams is, you know, that these folks do that. You know, and, and you can go all the way back. I mean, everybody's heard the stories, you know, from Wayne Gretzky when he left home at you know, such a young age. It you know, that's carried all the way through our generation for people that play. And I mean, God bless us for being associated with a group like we were in Toledo that You know we talked about was so good to us everybody was that all these years later here you and i are talking you've talked to so many other players and nobody has a bad word to say because it was just such a great experience
0: well i think too you know it's like you have to grow up earlier than most normal kids that play basketball i mean for them it's like everything's like it's a business it's a business or if you're gifted and you're able to play at an exceptional level when you're young it's like OK, I got to think about this because, you know, this could affect my stock in terms of playing at the next level, um, you know, and they that's how they treat growing up as where with hockey players, you guys lived in while you were still going to high school. You know, you lived it. You It didn't matter if you were the gifted player or not. You you, you had to a lot of times live in someone else's home, a complete stranger's home. Uh, And you you rode the buses and rode the cars at, you know, an early age, single digits. So that kind of stuff, you know, you did that once or twice a season if you're a basketball team or a football team, maybe. But you do that. You do that all the time from the time you're uh, even before Pee Wee's. You're, you're used to going to tournaments in Toronto or going to Boston or going to Chicago. You know, it's like that's no it's like it becomes almost routine, you know, and that's why I say it's a lifestyle. And you and, and I think that's what makes hockey unique from any of the other sports is the fact that you've got to grow up faster than you do elsewhere because you don't have the uh, that. You can just stay at home, hang out with your high school or schoolmates all the time and and do all that stuff. Unless you're just playing house, you're playing high school, and then that's it. You know, otherwise, I mean, if you're if you're doing travel, especially, uh, especially and even after high school, you're still only 17, 18 years old. And before you can even go to think about college, you're going to live at a stranger's house. You're going to be going to new cities um that's a lot to take in
1: yeah. it it really is and 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 the one thing that that gets you through it is is that it's it's common amongst every player almost every player on the team I mean there are a few that are normally closer to home but and and I think that's where that bond comes from with those with those teammates all these years later is. You're right. You're growing up together, even if it's just for a 40-game season. You learn so much at the time. And, you know, again, if you fast forward all these years, the opportunities then that it affords you, you know, you talked about, you know, the coaching that Kellermeyer's done and the coaching that Jennings has done. And, and you know, obviously these things don't happen if we don't make the commitment and and get lucky enough to land in some of the places that we did. You know, I wouldn't – I don't know I – I certainly – don't think I would have gone to college if I hadn't played hockey, you know, and then that turned into degrees in engineering and, and the job I have today. And it's all because at four years old, the folks said, hey, you want to give this a shot? Wow. And I mean that sincerely. I, I, none of that happens. I really believe this. None of that happens without putting those skates on at age four.
0: Wow. Man, that's awesome. Now, where did you play college at?
1: I went to the Milwaukee school of engineering, so division three.
0: Okay.
1: Yeah. And I studied, um, I studied structural engineering and construction management. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I do today is is, uh, manage construction projects in the healthcare world.
0: Now, how was, uh, how was hockey at, at, at that level in uh, Milwaukee?
1: Uh, it was okay. Um. We played the the conference or league, or I guess I'm not, I don't really, I don't pay much attention to college hockey these days, but the, the college um, game at that time was, it was a small conference. All the teams except for one were in Wisconsin. There was one in, um, at the time, Finley University in Ohio had a program that I think, their long-term goal was to go Division I. Now I don't think they have a program at all. No, they don't. Uh, not, I, I can't say that it was a super skilled level of college hockey. I did play with a couple of guys that, that, that wound up playing in the minor leagues after we graduated. Um, one guy that I played with was head and shoulders above anyone I had ever skated with. He reminded me of Paul Coffey when I'd watch him skate. And he played in the the East Coast League for several years, oddly enough, in Alaska, if that makes sense, (laughs) because they were part of the ECHL at the time. But no, it wasn't, and and that quite frankly, Mick, is when I kind of lost interest in the game was because it just, it wasn't competitive enough to keep you interested in it. You know and again you you mentioned the term growing up, and at that time, after two years of junior hockey you know i'm twenty one coming in as a freshman and twenty five when I graduate, and then you're just on to other things at that time you know it's um so I never went the route that some of the other guys you've spoken with I never got into coaching, not that I wouldn't have had an interest in it I just you know got on to other things and you know and, and now with a family um but still, super grateful that the the basis of the story is playing a game that led to those opportunities.
0: Hey, you can't argue that, not at all. Well, before we before yeah. we get done, number one, I want to hear one more good story about Toledo uh, with some of the guys in there because I'm trying to remember. Did was Derek Stum on your team? He was. Stummer Stummer was, was a piece of work. Him and Kellameyer to this day are. Oh gosh! Frickin' frac, they go back at it and forth at each other
1: all the time. Yeah, I I can't believe either of them aren't in prison by now, <laughs> especially especially when they're hanging out together.
0: <laughs> oh my god!
1: Obviously, but, um, let me think. So we we told the Windsor story. Oh, here's one for you. So we, I think this includes Burnside again. And this is bad because i have never this is one of the few times i saw my dad really really upset with me we flew to st louis i think we flew on a thursday and played it was either thursday or friday and we played saturday sunday or we played friday saturday i can't remember but my dad and his wife drove from my hometown st louis which i'd have to map it but it's probably 12 hours at least Mm -hmm. So we play St. Louis in the first game. We win the game. During the game, I'm carrying the puck up the right side boards, and I get tomahawk chopped across my right shoulder, like right at the base of my neck. My arm's numb. I can't feel. Searing, I get to the bench. He says, do not fight. OK. So we go back to the hotel. And I again, I'm, I can't remember. There was always four of us in the room. And I, and I know it again, it was Ronnie and myself and two of our other guys I just can't remember. And maybe this isn't good for kids' ears, I'm not gonna swear, but Ronnie and I had discovered chewing tobacco. Okay. Which Scott Searing did not permit. Nope. So we're in the room, right? And Searing comes in to kind of do the curfew check, make sure everybody's in their rooms. And I'm laying on the floor, dip in my mouth. Bernie's got one in too. And Searing comes in, and he's like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he kind of does, you know, the look around, make sure all four guys are in the room. And he says, all right, guys, good night. I'll see you in the morning at whatever time we had to be downstairs. So he takes off, and we look at each other like, oh, crap. This is bad. We go through warm-ups. I mean, you know, typical game day routine, Burnside night. Warm-ups are done. Searing walks over to us two and says, you guys can get out of your gear. You're not playing today.
0: Oh, man.
1: And I went, oh, my gosh. So now we've got to do the walk of shame right out of the dressing room up into the seats. (laughs) And my dad's up there going, you were on the ice 10 minutes ago. And now I've got to tell him the story. Now I don't know what I don't know what story Ronnie wound up telling whomever. But <laughs> and and that's back to what you were saying earlier about Siri being kind of the psychologist. Like he let you go all the way through warmups and then say, "Take a hike, boys." <laughs> and and he didn't even have to say why. We knew why. Um, so again, sorry if that story's no good for young ears, but I, it's something that I'll never forget. That. And it was, and it has everything to do with the way he approached it. And it, and and again, here we are 20, whatever, two years later, and it's still stuck with me. Yep. So, you know, and that's just part of the whole story that goes with, with playing there. Even as short a time I was there was, um, you know, just such a unique group of people. And, uh, um, you might have to ask one of the other guys just before we go Mick. I do recall, and I, again, I'm so bad with remembering who what happened to whom. But I remember one of our guys, again in Detroit, stretching out in the dressing room and someone walked by him and stepped on the tip of his finger with their skates and cut the tip of his finger off. Oh, no, I have not heard this one. Ask Kellermeyer; he might remember because he he remembers everything. But somebody got their pinky nipped off in a dressing room one time, and it was
0: oh my god,
1: it was a it was a little bit chaotic for the rest of the team at the time. Gee, you think? <laughs>
0: oh, oh my God.
1: Yeah, I'll I'll definitely there, reach out. There was another one during a game. It might have been um. Oh shoot. Again, maybe it's a mic question. One of our guys got cross-checked in the face and it's yeah, maybe I shouldn't even tell that story.
0: Oh come on. You can't you can't die dangle that like that and then take it back
1: he he get he get cross-checked in the face and the helmet like because we had to wear the mask the helmet comes up and folds his lip i'm gonna i gotta look at her are you still there no, can you still hear me hear all right it's um i had our roster up here i wanted to look at it real quick um that's still. I mean,
0: that. Oh my God,
1: it, Nicholson. That's who it was. It was Nicholson. He get cross checked. Mm-hmm. The mask comes up, folds his lip over his teeth, and his his lip is stuck to his teeth when he comes to the bench. Oh my God, and he's bleeding everywhere. And it's one of those instances on the bench where all the other players are like, "Oh my God, get away from me!" And he. Pushes the helmet up further, sticks his hand in his mouth, unfolds his lip, puts the mouthpiece back in, and says, "I'm ready to go." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! In the middle of in the middle of a shift, spitting blood out on the ice while he's carrying the puck. I mean, it was. It, and again, it's it's just guys like that, in in instances like that, where that connect you back to these people all these years later and as bad as I am at, at remembering a lot of details, things like that. It's. You realize,
0: you realize we spent the better part of well over an hour of you not telling great stories yet. You don't remember anything. The only thing you, you didn't really remember that was kind of like, okay, he doesn't remember is your Jersey number. Now, if you've got a roster there, I, you can look it up. <laughs>
1: Because I don't think that I don't think numbers are on here. It just gives it just gives um, positions and so way back to your earlier question, silver. I played a lot with Kevin, Kevin Silver, silver. Yep. on the. I remember. Yeah. yeah. And, and some with AVENC, but he, avank and I played completely different games. He would he was a totally different defenseman than I was. Mm-hmm. Um, I maybe it was was it 12 i honest to god i can't remember what sweater number i wore i'm gonna i'd have to go back like i said i've got boxes in the garage that have old game programs i'd have to take a look and see
0: that's all right but uh, um i'll I'll hunt it down and before i i put this up on on the website i will i will def i will hunt it down and find out what it is because i mean i'm sure it's probably on hockey db somewhere or something like that so
1: yeah, I, I'm sure it is. One last thing, Nick, before we go, next time you talk to Kellermeyer, and again, I'm 99% sure it was him, dislocated his pinky and Searing had to fix it on the bench. Oh. Almost positive it was Mike. If it wasn't, if it was it, it might have been Nicholson again, because he was always getting hurt. Oh. I mean, the, he turned inside their chins looked like cheese graters from getting hit with their helmets. But I think it was Mike that came to the bench Like holding his hand near his chest, and he took his glove off, and his pinky looked like a corkscrew. Oh my gosh, holy! (laughs) And I, I right, if I remember right, maybe it was Omi. It was either Searing or Omi. Just said, "Let me see it," and then just yanked it and said, "Put your glove back on."
0: Ah, I love, I love hockey. That's right there. That's just something you just do, you know. I, I, that's the whole, that's the whole mentality of hockey. You know, you could get, you can have, yeah. I mean, the commercial where the guy for the Capitals has the dislocated arm. It's like out of its socket. And he's like, you just put yeah. it back in and off he goes back to play. You know, it's just like, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. But that's so true. Hockey players are just, they're they're just a different breed altogether. Oh
1: yeah. You, you pay for it a bit later. I mean, I, you know, I broke my jaw in college and that is not, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, but you just, you just keep going. You, don't, you know, it's almost like you don't have a choice. It's just, it's part of your DNA. You just keep doing it.
0: <laughs> and the fact that you're playing hockey means you're also, you have that little bit of nuts in you uh, mentality, crazy nuts mentality <laughs> that tells you yeah. you, just, you just keep going. Yep. You just keep going. Yeah. Oh,
1: Especially the gold tag, the goofiest ones. Oh, good Lord.
0: <laughs> I just, uh, I mean, I always say that. I, that, that's my favorite saying when it comes to goaltenders and stuff. I just look and shake my head and go, "Goalies, you know that's all you can say about them. Goalies, you know they're they're not.
1: They're in. Adam Pobiak's billets had an ice rink in their backyard. Mm-hmm. He used to take all his gear home, and we'd go over there and just abuse him. Really? Oh gosh, it was. We would we'd set up in a in like in like a half circle, and he would just stay. Start shooting. No, no clue what direction the puck was coming from, I and mean, we would abuse him in that backyard. Oh my god, that is. He was of the of the of the guys on that team. I would. He was the last guy I ever would want to get into a tussle with. Really. Yeah, he was. He was pretty serious about what he did, and and he. You know, just as a goaltender, just it was almost like he liked taking that abuse, would you say, which was frightening would you, in a certain way. Would
0: you say he was tougher than JD Ring.
1: Oh, that's a They're both big boys. I don't know, man. That'd be a good tilt if they ever went after it. <laughs> uh, I don't know what their, you know, what their mindsets are at our age now, but back then that would have been a good scrap between ringer and and I
0: I haven't seen Adam since, since then, but uh, I've ran into JD and JD is just a wonderful guy. Now Uh, he he was a cool guy then too. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying that now I ran uh, a few years ago, we had a little uh, uh, reunion of the national championship team and some of the guys that uh, also played in different eras came in and he was coming in from Houston, forgot his skates. Way to go there, J.D. But uh, we had an alumni game, and we were out there. Omi was out there. We are all watching and everything. And uh, J.D. came in, and he just kind of hung out on the bench. And um, a lot of the championship guys were there, uh, including the the guys that came back from your year uh, and stuff, you know, uh, A-Bank, Stum. Uh, I think, was Brad Coombe on your team or no? Yeah, he was. Yeah, Coomsey and uh, some of the other guys that came came back and stuff. And just we all had an absolute blast. I mean, a blast. And that's the goal is that I want to do that again where, you know, yeah, we can have an alumni game. That's great. But the biggest thing I want to do is just get from the different air, just get everybody to come in and we go hang out. Maybe uh, go support the reverse raffle fundraiser they have and do it on a weekend when there's a game. And watch a Cherokee game in the stands, and just have a couple of diet Mountain Dews, and uh, and, and uh, just uh, <laughs> uh, just laugh ourselves silly, telling stories and, and telling tall tales, and, and just absolutely have a ball with it, you know, because that's.
1: I was- I I actually would be more interested in in being with that group than even the guys I played with in college, just because it was such a special bunch of guys, you know, it was, we had, honest to goodness, and, you know, I played from age four until I played a few years after college, so call it 30 or 31. So in those 25 plus years, still remains my, my favorite year of hockey was. Not, not so much the first half in Montana but that second half in in Toledo was just was just fantastic and and it, the one regret and I mean this singularly re- the the one regret I have is I had an opportunity to come back that next year and I decided to go back to the frontier league and uh, so I missed that that championship year which, um, I'm still kind of upset with myself about it. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? But guys, they all deserved it. They all worked their tails off. They were, it's such a good group of people that that they definitely earned and deserved it. Yeah,
0: and, and they did. And, you know, uh, it, I guess if there's any, it may not console you at all, but just look at it this way. You were the building block for them to go on to win that national yeah. championship game. It came off of guys like you. Bratton, Burnside, um, you know, uh, Deich, the Deiches,
1: you know. Too. Speaking of Pobiak, they would drive him crazy. I And I forget if it was Mark or Jay, I can't remember which one, but would call him Podiak with a D instead of a B. <laughs> And it, it, for whatever reason, it just would get under his skin. And he was like, you know, it wouldn't say much. He just shake. he was kind of like Elvis, right? Had the oh, big he had chops the big chops. Just...
0: I remember that.
1: Yeah. So he would just shake his head and be like, all right. It does mean no good to even try to correct you. So just go and call me Podiac." <laughs> right.
0: And of course we play the Kodiaks in the, uh, in the tournament. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And, and, and yeah. one other thing too, you got I remember playing and this is, I think what really put Toledo on the map was your guys's team. And that was when you beat in the national tournament at home at, at Tam you guys beat the New York apple Corps because they were the brand and they were the powerhouse that, that was uh, in, especially in the East coast area. They were, the te- they were the team. I mean, when they came to Toledo, they had, I think, one, if not both Scuderi brothers playing uh, that went on to play. In the- I think they did. They went on to play in the NHL. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, they uh, they were just like the team. I mean, it's like we're playing in the Apple Corps. Oh, boy. Nobody gave us a chance in that one. Nobody. And we had to win it to get to the national championship game. And, and yep. I think it was like a two to one game or three two something like that. And Pobiac played out of his mind. He made so many saves that saved our bacon. And I was just a uh, just a goofy. And like I said, this is my first year of it, and I'm like, oh my god, I could not believe how riveting it was. And
1: he would do that. He would get in those modes where it was. And it, it seemed like, especially if he was upset, that he would just he, – he, it was almost as he he'd be, become possessed, and you, you could not get a puck past the guy. And he was a big goaltender. Now, you, you, know, you look at those leagues back then, there's always a handful of, of bigger players on each team, right? But the trend in hockey at that time was the smaller – more skilled kind of shifty players is the word I'll use. And that tended to at the time follow, college hockey Would at that time would, would trend like three years behind the NHL in the, in the makeup of their teams. Mm-hmm. So to have a goaltender as big as he was at that time Especially at the junior level, you just didn't see it that often. You look at the NHL guys now and they're all six foot five. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, the you know, other, so, I think the other thing too, though, Steve, is that the, back then, you had a lot of junior A players playing Junior B.: Correct. 100 percent. There was only what? I think Kyle said there was only like eight NAHL teams back then.
1: Yeah, there were three leagues, because you're right. It was the North American League, the USHL, and then the, the Frontier League. The Frontier League, where I started that year, I think had six teams, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. The USHL was a bigger league at the time. But you're right, the opportunities were nothing like they are today. And I think, I, I, I would imagine if, if you pulled every everyone from that team, you probably hear a similar message that we all wish it was the same way today, just from the quality of the game.
0: Yeah, because it waters down because, when you have more teams.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, I mean, God bless the kids that get the opportunity to do it because of the conversation we're having. I mean, it, it, it you know, it presents so many more opportunities for other things. But yeah, I think for the, the kids and juniors now, it, it's a lot more difficult to get opportunities down the road because everybody plays juniors now.
0: Yeah, true. It's almost like it's the cool thing to do. You know, know, I can remember when it wasn't, you know, so, you know, but uh, it, it it is now. So, and and, and it helps grow the game, the interest in the game. I understand that. So I'm, you know, I, it's kind of six of of one side, half dozen of the other. You just kind of, you know, yeah, yeah you got to deal with a, a slightly watered down product, but you got a lot more kids interested in the game, and that's good for business. You know, at the end of the day,
1: so you're you're absolutely right. I the the one thing I think you will lose a little bit. I don't want to keep you too long. Oh, here, you're fine. Take is the time you want. one I get my phone to stand up. One of the things that Dave Cole said to us when we first got to camp for the the Bozeman Ice Dogs was. And I understand now why he said it, and it was to get rid of everybody's ego. He said, look, we were sitting in a room in a hotel, and he said, every one of you that are here, we're the best player on the team you came from. You're not here. There's players here that are better than you. So we're going to figure out what your role with the group is, and that's the role you're going to fill. And that's something that's stuck with me ever since then, obviously, because he he was absolutely right, but nobody had ever said that to us before
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know you have a tendency, and i think I think Jennings mentioned this when you know when he got to Toledo you you know there's you 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 have a tendency to come in and be a little bit cocky, and the first time somebody steamrolls you or you get your rear end chewed out by the coach and they take you down a peg or two, you know you kind of find your place and go, all right, this isn't about me. This is about this group of guys that I'm playing with and what we want to accomplish. What I've done in the past doesn't matter. And that's a good life lesson to learn too. I agree with you,
0: know? you there,
1: buddy. 100%. You don't have to pay, right? You're only as good as your last shift. That's you know? true. So.
0: That's very true. Oh man, I tell you. Well, I'll tell you what, Steve, I have had an absolute ball, you know, uh, getting to talk to you. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I always close each episode up with um, what would you like to say to Cherokee
1: Nation? To Cherokee Nation, I would say if they can continue the trend of supporting the players the way the folks did when we played, they will Number one, produce good human beings leaving from that team and going on to do other things in life. And number two, they're going to continue to win a heck of a lot of games. And the most important thing for me all these years later is for people in Toledo as good as they were to us to get an opportunity to thank them. And just because it was such an important place for all of us that went through there. And everybody's had success in their life, you know, to different degrees, but and I, I'd like to think that it had a lot to do with everybody coming through that organization and the way we were treated.
0: I couldn't agree more. You know, I went in- I,
1: Yeah, just a wonder.
0: I tried to quit that team so many times, Steve, because I was like, okay, gotta move on, <laughs> gotta move on. I couldn't do it. I couldn't say no to Mrs. Reniger. She at the time. She was the owner. Her and uh, Chuck Lemay and, yeah. and all those guys and yeah. I could not say no to I could not yeah. say no to them and they they just were so wonderful to me and my coaches also yeah. like Scott and Omi Bob uh, later on Vargs and Tarsha and K- Kinsella and Dunk Ian Duncan and all those guys I mean Dixie they were just all and the ones I didn't mention even all wonderful people. They really, you know, and they made it enjoyable while I was there. It wasn't a job. It was, you had stuff you had to do, yes, but it really wasn't a job to me. I did it because I loved it. You know, I was just this big fan who got to watch hockey. You know, I didn't have to pay to watch it. I got to go into the rink for free and and watch it, and it was such a blast watching. Even in the years that were kind of lean, You still, it was like, man, it just doesn't get better, man. I love this. And you love, and I love watching the kids grow, you know, and especially now that I talk to them later, you know, I don't care if you flip burgers or you're a CEO of a fortune 500 company or anything in between. As long as you came out of there being a productive human being, a good human being, and you're good to, you know, you love your families you know, and just do try to do the right thing. And as long as you're doing all that in my, in my book, you're a success. Okay. I don't care what your business card says. You're a success just because, and what you've learned through, you know, hanging out with the Cherokee and growing up and maturing through there. uh, I can't say enough good things about them. So I will, Oh, you know, they will, that will, I will take that with me to my grave. They will always be, if you look at my heart, you open up my chest, you'll see a little Indian head in there. You know? That's the way I look at it.
1: <laughs> you're 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 absolutely right, Mick. And and that's the thing of if you take away the hockey and you take away all the other stuff, what they the greatest gift that they gave us as players is they set us up to be successful, whether it was on the ice or 20 years later in life. And that is something that I don't think I'd be unique in saying that I'm extremely grateful for. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. They they set us up to be successful and we were in the game and and in the 20 plus years since then. And that's why it, it for for all of us it remains such a special experience. Yeah,
0: amen to that. And the relationships, you know, the relationships that we carry to this day.
1: So for sure
0: well, buddy. Yeah. Uh, now, where is where is home these days? Are you back in Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, I live in. A, I'll maybe I'll give you a challenge here to find it on a map. I live in a town called Blanchardville, which is about forty-five minutes southwest of Madison. It's a town of eight hundred people, wow. and then and then we we just last year we bought forty acres, about ten minutes away from us, where. Until COVID happened, we were planning to build a house, but with the cost of building materials, oh, days gosh, here, yes.
0: yeah, I understand that one all too well, but, uh, no, I, I, I know where Madison is. So if I go Southwest, yep, I got gotcha you then, but,
1: um, uh, yeah, kind of it, it's about as far to go to Dubuque for groceries as it is to go back to Madison. So if we're out here in the middle of nowhere and just enjoying quiet life these That's days. okay.
0: I, I live in a little town too, so I understand. Although when I want to go to the city for groceries, I only got to go eight minutes. So, you know, I don't, I don't have to go to another state. Well, actually, I could go to another state, but um, but no. It's just like, yeah, mine's a little closer, but I still love the, the sleepy little town I'm in. So, uh, but.
1: Yeah, it's wonderful. You know, it's great for the kids and, and, they can, you know, well, up until recently anyway, there was some stuff that went on in the neighborhood, but it was still a place, even up until a few weeks ago, we didn't lock the doors. Mm-hmm. You know, if you ran out of the house to go downtown to the hardware store, even if it's, you know, toward the end of the day, just leave the doors unlocked, come and go. You know, the dogs are out running around. It's, it's, I'm with you. When you, when you say the sleepy little town, it's perfect for our That's family.
0: That's a good thing, man. That's a good thing. Well, Steve, I appreciate you doing this, brother. Yeah. And, uh, when we do have that reunion, I hope you're going to find a way to get down here, bring the family and let them know that uh, uh, this was a part of your life, you know, this part of your life and how good it yeah. was.
1: I, I'm I'm really happy you reached out to me, Mick. It, 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 I mean, obviously, through the conversation, it, it brings back so many memories and good feelings and. And I think without the conversation, if I had seen a reunion thing, I might have kind of went, eh, I'll think about it. But um, after talking with you and, you know, still kind of through social media, keeping in touch with some of the boys, I'd, I would love to see them for yeah, sure. I mean, that
0: that's what so, I mean. It's like, it, that's what thank- it's all about is just the connection that you share, you know?
1: Well, and. And a huge thanks to you for being willing to do all this and keep us all connected. I know it's a lot of work, and I appreciate your time. This has been a lot of fun. Well, hey,
0: the pleasure is all mine because, again, I was able to do go on to do other big things and fun things, and et cetera, that I wouldn't have been able to do if it wasn't for being able to get behind a microphone and talk about you guys. You guys are the ones that helped me get to where I wanted to go. So that's this is just my that's little all. way of giving back. So, and saying thank you to you guys. Yeah. So, but, uh,
1: well, we're all, we're all just a, a strand of thread in the rope that keeps us all connected now. And that's wonderful. I, it's, it's really, really makes you feel good when you, when you think back and talk about these yep, things.
0: Yeah. A nice long strand of rope with a few kinks along the way. <laughs> but,
1: <laughs> Or as my dad would say, just don't try to push a rope. That's a really little <laughs> tricky. <laughs>
0: a wise man, your father was. A wise man. Yes. Oh Lord, <laughs> he wasn't. Well, that's gonna do it here for episode eighty-nine here of the Cher- or I'm sorry, ninety of the Cherokee Rewind. Uh, big thanks to Steve Litke for joining us here. Uh, don't forget subscribe so that every time a new episode drops, you'll be notified. So for Steve, I am Mick. You. We thank you so much for this, and we'll catch you next time right here on the Cherokee Rewind.